Good morning. We are so glad you're here for the, uh, we're I think in the third to last week of a series we've been doing for four months, Christism and Atheism. And the, you know, an ism is a philosophy of life. Christianity was first a philosophy. That's how it was perceived, was a way to do life. Uh, before it was perceived as a religion and a worldview. And that's what we're doing is using uh, a non-God reality to contrast it to the God reality. We're glad you're with us as today we deal with what has been hovering over us for the last year and a half more than ever, and that is the specter of death. And um, we have, a, I think, a special hour for you and for those of you who are watching online, you can even participate that way. We also uh, want to celebrate what's happening with Juneteenth. And uh, wasn't that a cool video? Let's give it up for Randy and Craig and what they're doing. I love this. You know, they've got about 25 teams right now. And it's, I, I said, just told Randy, I said, that's a great place to start with this movement. Uh, remember what I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, the five distinctives of the early church that we are embracing as a church. The first one was the first multicultural, multiracial movement in the history of the world is the movement you're sitting in the middle of right now. Isn't that awesome? It is. It was the first, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That had never happened on this planet before the movement of Christ. And uh, we want to be a part of that reality. This is not a left or a right thing. This is an above thing is what it is. And uh, so if you can be a part of Juneteenth, even if it's just, even if it's just, just going and participating in it, I, I hope it's the first of many. And like a lot of our City Lights initiatives, City Lights is just our outreach to inReach is really, and our inReach to outreach, it, it is... Uh, it is, you know, something we want to do, the first of many, participating with other ministries. That's the other thing is, is this is not a Southbrook event. We are just a part of a number of churches and a number of entities that are putting this on and uh, just very, very, very excited about that. If today you want to worship God through the most tangible way you can worship God, and that is by being generous financially to fund his movement in the world, then we would love for you to be a part of that. You can download Push Pay or you can do it in person at the welcome counter and uh, you can do it physically there. If, if there's a box there that is secured, and you can uh, participate in that. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things about spring that's really cool is that spring is the evidence of life all around us, right? I mean, we see things blooming and all that, but right now we have the evidence of death all around us, and that is uh, these little things called cicadas, and so I, we were going to Newark the other day, uh, Friday, and uh, the beginning of the trip, I got a, a number of cicadas who said their goodbyes uh, to life on earth. And look at that. I mean, it's like an elephant hit my windshield. Can you see that? Can everybody see that? And uh, do you know the last thing that went through that cicada's mind when it hit the windshield? I'm not going to tell you. You've got to ask someone because I'm not allowed to say that word here. Okay? The last thing that went through that cicada's mind. Well, look at this. Okay, so here's the connection between last week, sex, and this week, death. Yesterday, front page, Dayton Daily News. Cicada season won't last long. The males will die first after they've mated. 
but females shouldn't gloat, okay? <laughs> There's the connection between last week, after sex you die, guys. After sex you die, but females don't gloat on that. Oh my gosh, death, death, death. Look at these words from Job. If a person dies, will they live again? This is the ultimate question. Only after, is there a God? The only question that even rivals, is there a God? The biggest question is, is when a person dies, is that all there is? Is that all there is? I remember when I was a kid, my mom taught me to pray a prayer that I bet your mom taught you, and that was, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, say it with me, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Good night, honey. Sleep well. <laughs> Who the heck came up with that prayer for kids? But it worked because like many of you who had religion used to put the fear of God in you, I never, I'm not kidding you, I never failed to pray that prayer before I went to sleep. It was just like my good luck charm that, if, but it was also out of fear that if I don't pray this, I might die before I wake. Now what many people don't know is that there is a second verse to that. Imagine kneeling by your little beloved, and, and this is the second verse. Our days begin with trouble here. Our life is but a span, and cruel death is always near. So frail a thing is man. Who comes up with a prayer like that for a kid? Right? That just, just I mean, death before you go to bed. Honey, don't fear the reaper. Good night. Now, Epicurus, the Greek philosopher, believed that life would be better if we would give up this notion of God and just forget about death. Don't think about death, because you can't do anything about it, so don't think about it. And hence, Epicureanism, you may have heard about, is the belief that we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So if there is no God, and if all there is is annihilation, maybe, maybe it's just annihilation, you cease to exist, then don't think about death. You can't do anything about it. Just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, which, by the way, Nietzsche took that and took it a step further than only the strong survive, which Hitler took that further, and there's just all kinds of implications from that belief system that don't think about death. Because it makes life better if you don't think about death. The British philosopher Ricky Gervais believes the same thing. And he really promotes it in his show, Afterlife. Have you watched Afterlife, which is a show about the loss of his wife to cancer? And it's really evangelism for atheism. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating. As he really uses the art of drama and loss in a really cool way to promote the belief that if there is no God, that makes life better. Oh, really? Really, are we sure about that? Is it possible that belief in God is what presents a transcendent hope that allows you to enjoy the present? And this is our, if, if, if this is our premise, then we believe that there is there's some, there's some implication to that in how you grieve today. Sigmund Freud was famous for his not believing in God and was deeply affected by what he considered were the terrors of eternal nothingness. 
the originator of psychoanalysis, whom you would think he of all people would be able to grasp the causes of human frailty before the reality of death, he lived his whole existence with a foreboding sense of death. For example, in one of his letters, he said, for as for me, I, I note migraines, nasal secretion, and attacks of the fear of dying. So fearing death makes you snotty is what he was saying. <laughs> Ernest Jones was a biographer of Freud and he said Freud seems to have been prepossessed with thoughts about death more so than any other great man I can think of. He hated growing old even as early as his 40s and as he did so, the thoughts of death became increasingly clamorous. He once said he thought of it every single day of his life. The British philosopher Voltaire, noted atheist, said, I am of the opinion that one ought to never think of death. Death is a mere nothing. And yet, at, on his deathbed, he was recorded as crying out in terror, I must die, but I am only abandoned of God and of men. Of the most famous of atheists of the 20th century was Bertrand Russell. There was no more famous atheist in the 20th century than Russell. And he was vehement in his opposition to theism, he said, there is a darkness without, and when I die, <clears throat> excuse me, there will be nothing but darkness within. But when Bertrand Russell was lying on his deathbed, it is reliably recorded that he asked a friend, a Christian layman, to pray with him. And by the end of his life, there are strong indicators that Bertrand Russell, you may never read this, lost faith in his atheism. He lost his faith at death, his faith in nothing. Because you see, this, this issue is huge. Coming to terms with mortality has the power to turn an atheist into a theist. I've actually literally seen this happen two or three times. That someone who was stern in not just agnosticism but atheism got cancer and got loved and something happened. This is why Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7, that wisdom is found in the house of mourning, not in the house of laughter. Now, this was a guy who encouraged laughter in his journal, Ecclesiastes, and yet he says, if you want wisdom, don't go to a comedy club. Go to a funeral home. Watch people as they're, they're faced with the reality of living life backwards from their mortality. If a man dies, will he live again? Will she live again? Armand Nicoli was... Uh, a Harvard professor and he said the unbelievable brevity of our lives conflicts with our deep-seated yearning for permanence and with our lifelong fear of being separated from our loved ones a fear that haunts us from infancy to old age it's true isn't it now I lay me down to sleep I pray the Lord my soul to keep whether you prayed that or not, there's this constant specter of not knowing when our life's going to end that haunts humanity. Hence, look at these words right here. Since the children have flesh and blood, the Hebrew writer has been talking about the, the high priest Jesus entering into flesh and blood. This is so important in the first century because like America in the 21st century, first century Greco-Roman thought believed that the body and the spirit were two separate entities. What you did in the body did not affect your spirit. And this is the American theology, by the way. 
and you can do whatever you want with your body. Austin did such a great job last week showing that, that the body and the spirit are actually one and the same. And you are not a body that happens to have a spirit. You're a spirit that has a body. And they're intertwined. And so he said this is why Jesus had to come in the body to set us free in totality. And he says he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those, look at this, free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I think for me, I've watched a culture in the last year showing the signs that it is enslaved by the fear of death. We are enslaved by it. I mean, we have our creams and our Botoxes and our workout gyms and we have our, our advanced treatments and doctors and we have all these things that are meant to do what? Put off death. And I'm all for that. I'm not afraid of death, but I just don't want to be there when it happens, right? And we were, I'm all for that. I'm all for that. Remember the guy who believed that, that you know, he was so afraid of death, he had braces put on his false teeth so that he would look younger? You know, we, we all want to think we're younger, we're farther away from death than, than what is reality, and yet, and yet, and yet, we can't ignore this reality, and we're held in slavery by it until we face it. This is why the first of three things that we usually say at funerals is this one, death is inevitable. And the sooner you face that without becoming absorbed in it and obsessed by it, the, the closer you are to having a very healthy freedom to live. One of the things we repeatedly remind people of when we're doing a, an observation of life, a celebration of life, is that there is an obituary column out there in the future with your name on it. There is. Nobody's getting out of this alive. And the, few, and the sooner that you can accept that, in actuality, you are on the path to being free from that specter of death. George Bernard Shaw said one time that the, the statistics about death are pretty impressive. One out of every one person dies. And I think if you've checked the papers lately, the, the death rate is still hovering around 100%, right? It's still hovering around that. And it seems like it's backwards, but in reality, our inability to talk about it actually amplifies the fear of it. Death is inevitable. I think this is why wisdom is found in the house of mourning. It's because that's where we come into touch with our mortality. But there's a second truth that we often share at funerals that is so important in a nation that is really bad at grieving. Grief is natural. Grief is natural. Even if you're a believer, there are some believers who think, oh, don't grieve because, you know, Jesus resurrected from the dead, so we don't need to grieve. No, the apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. But he doesn't say we don't grieve. And it's really fascinating to me as much as the New Testament is full of these, these light beaming truths of hope and how it deals with grief is every bit as fascinating. My favorite story that if I don't know what to say at a funeral because I didn't maybe know the person well that I will share is always from John 11. When the friend of Jesus, Lazarus, died and his two sisters, Martha and Mary, come up to him in Bethany and they say, Jesus, why didn't you come when we asked you to? If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Martha comes to Jesus first and says that. 
by herself. Martha was the doer. She's very system, different from her sister Mary, who was the feeler. Any of you have sisters, and it's like you were born from a different gene pool? that You're nothing alike? Well, these two sisters were that way. Martha was the one whose house was always clean. Mary was the one whose house was always messy. They were just very different. And Martha comes up to Jesus and says that. And Jesus looks at her and says, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And he essentially has a theological discussion meeting her doubts and her grief where it is. A few minutes later, Mary comes up and she says, Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. And you get the sense that Mary and Martha have rehearsed. This is what we're going to tell him when he gets here. You really do get the sense because they say the exact same thing. It's clearly rehearsed. And what does, Mary, what does Jesus do with Mary the feeler? He doesn't have a talk. He puts an arm around his shoulder and he weeps with her because that's what the feeler needed. And what we get a glimpse of is even though he knows he's going to resurrect Lazarus in a matter of moments, he knew that grief could only be healed when we allow it to fully run its course because we've been honest with it. In America, the default task of grieving is to numb our loss or replace our losses. That's our way. If you don't think about grief, you will default to one of those two uh, strategies. And Jesus' way was to say, Martha and Mary, I know you believe. I still want you to be healthy and whole. And that comes by being honest about, you don't like how this turned out. Anne Lamott, the writer, said, my belief is that when you're telling the truth, you're close to God. If you say to God, I'm exhausted and depressed beyond words, and I don't like you at all right now, and I recoil from most people who believe in you, that might be the most honest thing you've ever said. If you told me you had said to God, it is all hopeless, and I don't have a clue if you exist, but I could use a hand, it would almost bring the t- tears to my eyes, tears of pride in you, for the courage it takes to get real, really real, would make me want to sit next to you at the dinner table. And for those of you who grew up in religion where you were, oh, you were told, don't, don't shout at God, don't, be, don't doubt God, you need to hear this. Even if you are a strong believer, grief is the natural course of living on a planet where there is something we weren't made for, death. And do your best when God is silent to be honest about it, to be honest about it. God, where are you? If you were really powerful, this wouldn't have happened, or if you really cared, this wouldn't have happened. You see, the silence of God when there is death is striking. I mean, this is the thing about death. I I underestimated this. I underestimated that in ministry I'd be around death all the time, and it really took a toll on my faith and my being because we're around death almost weekly. And it's striking how silent God can seem when there's death. You would think he would show up then. Sometimes he doesn't. But I want to tell you, especially you students who are going to have your faith deconstructed in college, the silence of no God is worse. The silence of no God is worse than the silence of a God who is there but is often silent. The... the, the inevitable reality of death means that there are going to be moments where we say with Mary and Martha, where are you, God? Do not mistake that, that there is no God. Because there's one thing, in the words of Philip Yancey, there's one thing worse than disappointment with God. It's disappointment without God. 
There's no God. As a matter of fact, remember this, students. You have two options. One is, I'm an accident of the cosmos. I'm the latest model of the ape. There's no meaning to my life. When I die, I'll be food for worms because I'm just a random collection of atoms. He who dies with the most toys wins because that's all there is and no one cares. That's one option. You can choose that option. And you can believe with Ricky Gervais, that's the best way to live. I don't think so. Because here's the other option. It really is this binary. I'm a unique design and creation of an incredibly good and intimate creative God. I'm made in his image. I have an amazing capacity to reason, choose, and therefore love that sets me above all other life forms. I will not only survive death, but I bear an eternal weight of glory. I cannot even fathom now. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has in store for those who love him but will one day know which option seems better? Which option seems better? And this is the one that allows for honest grieving. It's the one that allows you to look at Jesus and say, where are you? I know you're there. I'm not just crying out to nothing. There's an old cartoon in which two atheists are going door to door sharing their religious beliefs that there is nothing, belief in nothing. And they go to a door, they knock on the door, and they share the, the pamphlet with the guy who answers the door in the cartoon. And the guy goes, it's blank. There's nothing on the pamphlet. And they say, we know, we're atheists. Is, is God who's silent sometimes in death, who doesn't show up to Bethany when you need him to show up, is that better than there's no God there? It's just annihilation. I think it is. I think it is infinitely better. And it's based in truth. There's an atheist philosopher named Norwood Russell Hansen who said, you know, I'm not a stubborn guy. I would become a theist, a believer under some conditions. I'm open-minded. Then he explained, he was a professor at at, uh, Harvard, the conditions under which he would believe. Suppose next Tuesday morning, just after breakfast, all of us in this one world are knocked to our knees by a percussive ear-shattering thunderclap. Snow swirls, leaves drop from trees. The earth heaves and buckles, buildings topple, towers tumble. The sky is ablaze with an eerie silvery light. And just then, as all the peoples of the world look up, the heavens open and the clouds pull apart, revealing an unbelievably radiant and immense Zeus-like figure towering over the earth like a hundred Everest. He frowns darkly as lightning plays over the features of his Michelangeloid face. And then he points down at me and explains for every man, woman, and child to hear, I've had quite enough of your too clever logic chopping and word watching in matters of theology. Be assured, nor would Russell Hansen, that I most certainly do exist. He goes, I'd believe. At that point, I would believe. Especially if God used my middle name, I would then believe, wouldn't you? But here's the problem with that, is many people have, uh, they have that mountaintop experience. It goes all the way back to the children of Israel who had these unbelievable, literal mountaintop experiences. And then in a matter of days, we're going, well, that wore off. Let's go back to Egypt where we get free food. Leeks and onions, like, no, mountaintop experiences are great. They're not the basis of faith. They're the fruit of faith. The basis of faith is the ability to reason and logic and come to a conclusion that kicks in when I don't feel it. When I don't feel the mountaintop experience. When God feels quiet 
And in that, I have a security that says I can face life and death honestly. I told Laura this morning, Buffington, I said, you know, if I'd have given this talk 10 years ago right now, I'd be a weeping mess because 10 years ago right now, I lost my, mom, my dad and then my mom within about a year and a half of each other. And it was just a really challenging time. Actually, 10 years ago right now, we were in Egypt, and I was grieving the whole time, and I was in immense grief. But today, it's been 10 years. Uh, I lost an uncle last year, and that was painful. He's a guy that taught me to play golf. And, but it wasn't like, you know, I've lost someone in the big three. And I was afraid that I would come across uh, maybe so hip-hop happy day about hope that, that it would, I would be unfeeling. If I do, it's because my hope is strong. But if I do, it's because it's been a while since I've been where some of you are right now. You are right in the grip of the darkness of grief. As many of you know, there was a young girl named Agnes who grew up so close to God. She would write about her epiphanies and the peace and joy she felt so much. So she gave her life to serving God's purposes. And she gave her life to caring for the dying. She underestimated what being around death every day would do to her. And she said, she said she lost her faith. God was silent for 40 years, 40 years to the person you know as Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And when she shared this in her, mem her memoirs a number of years ago, guys like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, the atheists, Hitchens said, Mother Teresa only dug a deeper pit for herself with every profession of her false faith. Dawkins told the world not to be taken in by the sanctimoniously hypocritical Mother Teresa who talked of faith but yet talked of doubt. And what they, they didn't get it. That is faith. Faith is serving the dying when you feel like God is not there. But you believe he is. Unfortunately, Mother Teresa had a counselor who told her three things. First, the counselor told her, there's no human remedy for this darkness. No human remedy for this darkness that you will find yourself in sometimes. So she should not feel responsible for it. It's God's deal. Number two, that feeling the presence of Jesus was not the only or even the primary evidence of his presence in her life. This is really important. Those of you who are living in this feeling-based America, it's all about how we feel. We get our, literally get our identity from how we feel, as fleeting and deceptive as emotions are. This is really important that you do not base your faith on your feelings because there's going to be times when you are not feeling it. And that was true of her. And thirdly, for 40 years, thirdly, the pain she was experiencing could really help others. And this, she said, I did not want to hear. And if you've ever seen a five-year-old with leukemia, you do not want to hear that this is going to bless other people. But it was true. She inspired more people with her memoirs than she did any other writing she'd ever done because people learned the reality of the 40 years of God's silence. And yet she was still faithful. God's silence became part of her faith and her ability to truly grieve. If you're here today, and you say with Job, though he slays me, yet I trust him, you have faith.
you have faith. Love, love, love the words of Christian Wyman. He was a poet who grew up in Texas and at age 39, he grew up in a very, very strict religious upbringing in Texas and he abandoned his faith, became an atheist, but at age 39 he contracted a rare form of cancer which brought him back to his Christian roots and he, he re-embraced a, a faith in Christ in his meditation that I would really recommend called My Bright Abyss. He wrote these words, I am a Christian today because of that moment on the cross when Jesus said, drinking the very dregs of human bitterness, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, I know, I know. He was quoting Psalm 22 there. And who quotes a poem while being tortured, by the way? The words aren't the point. The point is that he felt human destitution to his absolute degree. The point is that God is with us, not beyond us in suffering. I am a Christian today because I understand that moment of Christ's passion to have meaning in my own life. And what it means is that the absolutely solitary and singular nature of extreme human pain is an illusion. I'm not suggesting that ministering angels are gonna come down and comfort you as you die, although I think they do. I don't know yet because I haven't died yet. If you've died, let me know, okay? But I think so. I'm suggesting that Christ's suffering shatters the iron walls around human, individual human suffering. Did you catch that? I am suggesting that Christ's suffering shatters the iron walls around individual human suffering, that Christ's compassion makes extreme human compassion to the point of death even possible. Human love can reach right into death then, but not if it is merely human love. Yesterday at Cancer Crush, I reminded everyone, heaven can break through the darkness of cancer. Isn't that amazing? And it's doing it through all you people who are caring for those who have cancer, who are caring for those who are caring for those who have cancer. You see, when human love is infused with the reality of God's love, we grieve naturally and we're compassionate in death. We don't have to avoid it. We don't have to run from it. We don't have to numb ourselves from it. We can face it because we've embraced the one who says this third thing. And that is that hope is available. Hope is available. This is the amazing reality that sets Christ apart from every other faith system ever thought of, invented. You know, a real interesting thing is that in the spring we see this reality of resurrection happening all around us, right? We see it. Cicadas dying in front of us, notwithstanding. Someone found a cicada back there today after the first service, okay? So check your shoulders right now. Just make sure you didn't bring someone in with you. But we see it all around. The first law of thermodynamics, you know what it essentially says? Matter is neither created nor destroyed. It merely changes forms. The first law of thermodynamics is essentially saying resurrection is all around us. When the Big Bang happened, when God said, let there be, there was what physicists call singularity. There was an explosion of gases that, be, that, 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 in, that was infused with light. And when God created this universe, this, ex, this just explosion of gases would form stars, matter collected, atoms, helium, hydrogen over time. And then what happens is stars would expand and they would explode and they, that death of that star would create other stars where there's this thing 90 million miles away. Have you seen it? Our star called the sun. And do you know why you're alive? It's because it's dying. It's dying. 
The sun, our star, is dying, and by dying, this thing called photosynthesis happens, and it, and it, it is creating life in you and me. All the time around us, we see resurrection. We see death brings life. Death brings life. Nature is pregnant with this truth. Death brings life. Death brings life. Matter of fact, today, what are you eating after church? What are you eating? Think about what you're eating. It's dead. Okay, what you're eating, I, mean, I know, I know, I know you're vegetarian saying, yeah, but it's just plants. I know, it's dead plants. It's dead plants. And what's going to happen is a metabolic process happens where you take that dead stuff into your body, and what does it give? It gives life. You know why? Because death leads to life. Death leads to life. Death leads to life. Death leads to life. And Jesus came to say that no, de- no alive thing ever stays dead. Matter of fact, look at these words. This is, this is incredible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. From dust we are made to dust we will return. You actually, this is not reincarnation. The actuality is your, your essence, physically speaking, will return to dust and, and matter is neither created nor destroyed. That dust will form life in something else. Isn't that amazing? Turn to the person. So when you say that, you, you know, when, when we say, like you called that guy a dirt bag, you're not far off. He's a dirtbag. You are all dust bunnies, okay? Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a dust bunny. Okay, you're a dust bunny. Dust you came, turn right now. Say to someone and just affirm, you're a dust bunny. You're going to go back to dust, all right? Do this right now. Because you know what? That dust didn't stand dead. That, that you are not in the grave. You, to be absent from the bodies, to be at home with the Lord. You, but, but your matter is being reformed to give life to something. It's amazing, isn't it? And that's why, look at these words. That's why we hold on to these words. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection of life. I embody reality. Death means life. Death means life. The one, the one who believe, ones who believe in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, Martha said. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world, and you're going to give the definitive statement, death brings life, death brings life, death brings life. Listen to me today, all you religious and irreligious people here. Jesus came to give you an invitation to resurrection. Do you want to take that invitation? Do you want that? You want to receive that invitation? It's your, it's your choice. You can be a cosmic accident, or you can be a divine image-bearing creation. That death will not be the final word. It, death will be to you, and according to Jesus in John fourteen, like your dad taking you up to your room on the way home from your cousins, and you wake up in a sun-drenched room in the morning. Resurrection. Anybody want that? That's the invitation. Today, as you sit here and you do what we're about to do, you remember, from dust I came, dust my body will return, but I'm not dying. I'm not dying. Let's do this together now. Take some minutes. I'd like for you to put everything down in your hands. Let's take a few minutes to mark death so that we can move on to life. Amen? Amen? Let's do this now, yeah.